This morning's scripture comes from uh, Hebrews, the 10th chapter. I'll be reading from verses 19 through verse 25 at uh, Hebrews chapter 10. We're in a sermon series uh, thinking about uh, the power of worship, worship that comes with warning label, because uh, worship is powerful. Worship being in God's presence is dangerous because it brings about change. And this morning we're thinking about how worshiping together actually uh, helps us when we lose hope, how uh, important it is to worship together so that we don't lose hope. And I want you to follow along silently as I read aloud from Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 19. So, friends, we can now, without hesitation, walk right up to God into the holy place. Jesus has cleared the way by the blood of his sacrifice, acting as our priest before God. The curtain into God's presence is his body. So let's do it, full of belief, confident that we're presentable inside and out. Let's keep a firm grip on the promises that keep us going. He always keeps his word. Let's see how inventive we can be in encouraging love and helping out, not avoiding worshiping together, as some do, but spurring each other on, especially as we see the big day approaching. The Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. By way of review, our church has been in a visioning process that was called Imagine If, morphed into an implementation process that we have just recently begun called Setting Sail. And we have been looking at uh, the five sails that will drive that ship, and one of the sails is God-centered worship. I want to show you on the screen uh, our preferred future for uh, what we want to be in three to five years. Uh, We're not going to look at all of those sails, but particularly at the worship one. Our preferred future is one where First Baptist Church honors God with extravagant love, seeking God's mysterious and loving presence individually and together. Simply put, we love God. That's who we are. That's where we want to be every day of our lives as, uh, as we set sail into God's future for us. The uh, Hebrews letter was written late enough in the first Christian century that already uh, believers were beginning to lose interest, some of them. They were beginning to drop out, some of them. And the Hebrews letter was written to address some of that struggle and some of that reality. They, they were dropping out of worship. They were dropping out of fellowship experiences. They were dropping out of opportunities for encouragement. And uh, some leaders of the churches noticed that. Uh, if you were to stop and think about why that happened, lots of reasons. We can't probably choose them all or find them all. Uh, one would be just plain apathy, sort of a been there, done that, uh, you know, just sort of that blah that sets in. The, the fire goes out sometimes spiritually. Another reason that they may have stopped gathering for worship and encouragement and fellowship is uh, some arrogance, some sense that, you know, this Jesus thing is easy. I can do this on my own. I don't need other people. And without really saying it in those terms, when we try to go it alone, that's what we arrogantly assume. Another reason, of course, that they may have uh, scattered and not gathered faithfully was persecution. Uh, There were lots of things coming down on them and in terms of persecution, having their property confiscated and being mistreated in many, many ways. Well, I got to thinking about that. Why do people drop out of church today? Why do people not come faithfully to worship? Why do people not 
take advantage of fellowship and growth experiences. Maybe all of the above, with the exception of persecution. Uh, We in the West don't really uh, suffer that much for uh, gathering uh, for worship. Uh, But other reasons probably could be added, like uh, had a negative church experience and a bad taste in my mouth, so I just, I don't want anything to do with the church anymore. Uh, Maybe people see the church as irrelevant intellectually, uh, not connecting with them at, at points of need. Sometimes I think people drop out of church because of some failure in their own life, and they're embarrassed. Uh, they, they feel like they're not good enough, or they, they're embarrassed to be around people, or whatever reason. And uh, we could add to that just being busy, being distracted, too many other things get in our way, and on and on. But I want to suggest another reason why people drop out of faithfully being a part of corporate worship or fellowship opportunities, encouragement opportunities, and that is hopelessness. Uh, People are living with lots of despair. They feel the weight of the world on their shoulders, and they're just sort of drudging, just trudging around in in, in weekly life, and they just feel beaten down, and, and they just sort of think, what's the use? And it's that hopelessness that I think the Scripture particularly addresses this morning And uh, related to that, I want to ask you a question, just a one-person poll uh, asking you. When you go through a a crisis, when you go through a really rough time, are you more likely to draw closer to God's family and corporate worship and, and fellowship and encouragement of believers, or are you more inclined to draw away from believers and worship and God's people and just sort of cocoon in your own world. See, when you begin to wrestle with that question, you begin to see how closely this this cuts into our own lives, this relationship between hopelessness and the importance of corporate worship, the importance of being together on a regular basis. I begin with an analogy that that is simple enough from my uh, growing up years that I think everybody could relate to, Uh, And it's simply this truth that when I was in middle school and high school, I played the trombone. Uh, I didn't say I played it well, and I didn't say that I would ever play it in orchestra because I don't have it anymore, and Rod's never asked me. Isn't that just sad, you know? He's never really invited me. I've dropped a few hints, but it hasn't happened. But I played the trombone, and I remember that the band instructor, uh, I think he went through some really painful days listening to us play. I'm just... Pretty sure he did, because once in a while, he would tap his baton on the music stand, and he would say, do you all realize something? That if you would practice more at home, we would all sound better here together. And it was like, let me make a note of that. I need to write that down. But, you know, that's the way it is with worship. You've noticed that when we've talked about worship in this sermon series, we've, we've never just talked about the gathered Sunday community. Certainly, we've talked about that. But worship happens individually, one-on-one. Worship happens in small groups, in families. Worship happens in the gathered community on Sunday. But it's all important. And the more we practice at home, the more we practice worship privately, the more we're going to get out of it when we gather together on Sunday, the better we're going to sound as we offer up something to God. And the, the second part of that analogy works also. Because the band instructor would say things like, if you don't show up at rehearsal when we're all practicing together as a band, it's not, it's not the same. 
No one else takes your place. No one else sits in your seat. You have to be here for the band, for the orchestra, for the music to sound right. And it's the same with worship. It doesn't matter if you miss worship for a good reason. It doesn't matter if you miss worship for a very noble reason. Every time you're not here, we are diminished and you are diminished because we cannot make the kind of music to God that we need to make through the corporate experience. And so I would go on record, since this is the fourth in this series on, on uh, worship that comes with warning label, I would, I would go on record as saying, yes, you can worship God on the lake. It can happen. Yes, you can worship God on your deck, sipping a cup of coffee, reading the paper. It happens. Yes, you can worship by seeing a sunset. And yes, you can worship looking in the face of a child. But I am saying this morning that there are some things that can only happen in our lives when we are God's gathered community in corporate worship. There are some blessings that only come when we are together as God's people. And that's the importance of corporate worship. And I think that's what the writer of Hebrews is getting after in verse 24 when he says, let us consider how to provoke one another to love and good deeds. The word provoke is interesting. It means to prod. It means to goad. It means to inspire. It means to stimulate. The only other time this Greek word is used in the New Testament, it's in Acts 15 when the Apostle Paul and Barnabas were having a sharp disagreement over their missionary plans. A sharp disagreement, and that word sharp is the word for goading or provoking or poking or encouraging. Let me ask you something. The people most meaningful in your life, the ones who have inspired you, the ones who've made you a better person, the ones who have really made a difference in your life, wasn't there in that relationship some accountability? Wasn't there some teeth in that relationship? Some sense of covenant responsibility that, that called forth something more in you than just the mediocre. See, that's the provoking that the, apostle, uh, that the Hebrew writer is, is talking about in this scripture. And he says, provoking one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. And I got curious about that word habit or custom. Looked it up. And here, listen to the Greek word for habit. Ethos. That's come over into our language, hasn't it? He says, there has developed an ethos among some followers of Christ that they don't have to meet together. They've gotten sloppy. They don't worship together. They don't meet together. It's an ethos. And an ethos is a way of being. It's an accustomed pattern of behavior. It's, it's a prevailing pattern of conduct over a period of time, it's a habit. It's, it's an ethos. Uh, I, I know a lot of you watched the Olympics this summer, last month. Uh, breathtaking and inspiring. I mean, looking at those athletes' chiseled bodies and the, the discipline that they live with, uh, hearing the stories of the hours and the years they've spent in training, the time of day they get up every day, and they're never tyrannized by their emotions. You know, these athletes, Olympic athletes, don't say, you know, I don't feel like exercising today. 
They don't say things like, I don't feel like showing up for my training today. There is a discipline, an ethos, a pattern of behavior that says, I'm going to pay a price because I'm after something really valuable and I'm after something really important. It's that ethos, not neglecting the assembling of yourselves together as is the ethos, the the pattern of other people. I love the story about the lady who was walking to church in the driving rain, and she stepped into the vestibule of the little church, and she took off her raincoat, and she was dripping out her, her umbrella. She was trying to put it away, and a young person bounded up to her and said, I see that this morning you decided to come to church. And this dripping wet lady said, no, I didn't decide this morning. I decided 50 years ago when I first started following Jesus, and I haven't changed my mind. I made up my mind that I was going to be in church a long time ago. And it's that ethos, that pattern of behavior. And then the, writers, uh, the writer of Hebrews adds another phrase, not neglecting the meeting together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another encouraging one another. That's the positive. The provoking is the, is the negative, the goading, the, the accountability, the encouraging is the positive. You see, we live with such pain in our lives. All week long we hear negative messages. We watch the news, we read Facebook, we We go to work, we hear about everything that's wrong with our lives and the job we're doing, and we get beaten down and our self-esteem gets bruised and and we get battered and, and how desperately we need at least once a week to come together in worship and to be encouraged by one another and to be encouraged by God's people in worship. William Willimon is a pastor and author He once asked a black pastor, he said, you know, we white churches have a lot to learn from you. Uh, Why is it that so many black churches take about two hours to worship on a Sunday morning? And uh, the pastor looked at Williman and said, well, it's pretty simple. Uh, All week long, my people receive the message that they're nobody. Unemployment in our neighborhood is 49% among males. And he said, the dropout rate for school students is extremely high. And all week long, what my congregation hears, you don't count, you don't matter, you're a nobody. He said, so it takes me approximately 120 minutes to tell them that's a lie. You are somebody you count. God loves you. You're a person of worth. Christ died for you. You matter. We come together to be encouraged and to find out we are valued creations of God and that God has a plan for our life, no matter what we've heard all week long. You know, you could read this scripture and hear this sermon as a finger-wagging, ought-to kind of sermon. And I hate finger-wagging, ought-to kinds of sermons. That's not what this is. So I would ask you, what's the motivation for believers to faithfully meet together for worship so that we might be hopeful? Well, 
It's not guilt. I don't want church to work that way. I don't want the Christian life to be lived that way. And it's not a work salvation where we earn points with God by coming to church. We gain His favor. We can't get saved that way. It's, it's a more positive motivation. It's what Christ did for us that mot- motivates us to be together. It's what, he did, it's what He did for us in the past. It's what He does for us right now. It's what it's go- He's going to do for us. Embedded in the Scripture in Hebrews 10 are all three. What He did for us in the past, verses 19 and 20, Christ died for us. And when His body was ripped... The curtain in the temple was ripped. It was ripped open, signifying that everybody can come into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, that our sins are forgiven. That's what Christ did for us in the past. What does he do for us now? Verse 21, the Hebrews writer says that Jesus Christ is our priest, present tense. He's our priest forever. And that he has made us priests to one another in encouragement and provoking and, and blessing and, and helping one another. It's what he did for us in the past. It's what he does for us now. He's our priest. And we are motivated to worship because of what he's going to do for us. Because look at the very end of verse 25. Encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. The day, meaning the day when Jesus Christ will return. The day meaning the day when Jesus Christ will complete history and he will bring everything to faithful conclusion and he will gather us home into his eternal experience. That's what Christ will do for us in the future and that's why we worship. On February 4th, 1945, the American prisoner of war camp in Manila was liberated by the Allied troops. American families, entire families, men, women, children, had been held captive in Manila in this prison camp all during the war. And this story is beautifully told by Sasha, a, a, a survivor who was a child at the time, as she was interv- interviewed by Ken Burns and his staff for the wonderful documentary, The War, about World War II. Sasha tells about living in that prison camp as they could hear the Allied troops getting closer. They could hear the, the, the tanks approaching. They could hear the skirmishes around the prison camp. And every day they believed might be the day of liberation when the gates were opened. Sasha said her little brother started laying out his one and only suit on his bed every morning. And he said, that's my gate suit. That's the suit I'm going to wear when they come and open the gates and we get to walk through it to freedom. And every morning, he'd lay out his gate suit. And he was so excited for the liberation that was coming. And then Sasha said the day of liberation came and her little brother put on his suit. But she said that when the day of liberation came, her mother, who weighed only 73 pounds by this time, had to be carried out of the camp toward the gate of freedom because she was so weak. Her husband was carrying her and as he carried this small little lady, he almost stepped through the gateway into freedom and his wife stopped him. And she said, wait, go back to the barracks. He said, what? She said, I forgot to put on lipstick. (laughs) 
She said, I want to be dressed right for this. I want to be at my very best for this day of liberation. I don't want to walk through the gate without being at my very best. And so she put on her makeup, her lipstick, her little boy put on his gate suit, and they were liberated as they walked through the gateway to freedom. Jesus Christ is coming back to set us free. Jesus Christ is coming back to liberate us. And that is that hope that draws us on. Draws us on What He's done for us on the cross, what He's doing for us as priests, what He will do for us when He returns. And we gather to worship because every worship experience is a dress rehearsal. Every time we gather, we are doing dress rehearsal for the day of liberation, for the day when Jesus returns. We're just getting everything ready. So we worship because Christ is risen. We worship because Christ is coming back. And we worship because we are hope-filled people. Amen? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father, thank you for the great liberation that's coming, for the hope of Jesus, and for the privilege of worship in the meantime. God, help us to have our hearts ready open to all that you want to teach us about worshiping and following. Fill our hearts with your truth during this response time, we pray. Amen.